0: By far, one of the most dynamic defensive players, if not the most dynamic. Welcome to the Sports Forecasters Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. This podcast has been created not to dwell and over-evaluate what has already happened in the sports world, but to predict and to forecast what has yet to come. From game picks to draft picks, and from trades to free agent signings, we will let you know what happens before it happens. Your hosts, Nick and Nate will evaluate, study, and understand sports patterns, tendencies, and nuances to better prepare you on what to expect, just like Weatherman, but way more accurate. So if you like to pick games or you simply just want to be in the know before anybody else, you are in the right place. Enjoy the show. Good evening, everybody. You're listening to the latest episode of the Sports Forecasters. I'm your host today, Nick Alvarez, and we're here to go through a few things today. Cap off our NFL season. We're going to take a look back at Super Bowl 56, Rams versus Bengals. We're going to talk about the future of the teams, and then we're going to finish off this episode looking at the NBA All-Star Weekend that's coming up in our backyard of Cleveland, Ohio. Without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get started. Super Bowl 56, the game that was. This NFL playoff season has been nothing short of great for the last seven games. We had Divisional Weekend, which was a monster success. All four games coming down to the wire, teams battling to the end. Then we had Conference Championship Weekend, where we saw San Francisco and Los Angeles going down to the last moments to decide who was going to come out on top, where The Rams ended up pulling out a little magic on the offense and defensive side to secure that victory. And then we have the impressive comeback to the Bengals against the Chiefs to get us to Super Bowl 56 in the Rams' backyard. Going into this game, a lot was made about different factors of it. How impressive the Bengals have been this season about coming from seemingly nowhere. Yes, we know Joe Burrow is talented. We had a feeling Jamar Chase was, but for the whole team to come together and just look as good as they did during their impressive run during the final stretches of the season, as we talked about in the last episode, and then coming into the Super Bowl, the question was was the moment going to be too big? And on the Rams side, they've been seemingly curating this to be their moment. This is what they've been building themselves to be ever since McVay came into the picture. The Rams have just been making moves over and over and over again to just get that next piece, that next piece, that next piece to finally hopefully be back at the Super Bowl. I would say overall, this was a very exciting, a very pleasant to watch matchup. It did not disappoint. It was just a lot of feeling out those first two drives. Then the Rams started finding something, worked their way down the field, get the first touchdown. The Bengals end up scoring a field goal. Then the Rams get another touchdown with a messed up PAT. And that did come back to haunt them. But nonetheless, the Bengals score a touchdown to draw it within three. And then Matthew Stafford ends up having an interception in the end zone. Then we go into halftime. Coming out of halftime, Bengals right out the gate blasted them for a touchdown. Stafford ends up throwing an interception right after that. I wish there was a better statistic here in the NFL for interceptions because this one was slightly ahead of the receiver, mind you, but hit his hands, very catchable, and it just bounced off his hands to a Bengals defender. Looks like Bengals are going to take a big time Lead on this, but Rams end up pulling them the field goal. Rams get into field goal right after that. Then a lot of back and forth, back and forth. Lots of punts. Very small drives here, and then the Rams get the final touchdown of the game. Now that's an oversimplification of the game. Let's look back at what was going on. First, if I may, to talk about the play of the Bengals, the team that ended up losing, for two and one quarter of a quarter. Bengals offensive line. Looked like they were doing a very good job of just holding serve, keeping Joe fairly clean. He only gave up one sack going into half. And then after that, it just, they just looked confused. The Rams made an adjustment. The offensive line coach or the offensive corner just wasn't making great calls to help keep Joe clean. That was the turning point of this game, is when they couldn't keep Joe Burrow upright. Because Joe was doing his part to keep the team pretty well in it this was an evenly match matchup which you hope for every super bowl um not too often do you have it to where it's a complete blowout and the other team is overmatched here was no exception until that offensive line just got in a disarray the Rams were sending blitzes, mostly overloads to one side, and they just couldn't keep their double teams on Aaron Donald and take care of the rest of them. Joe was running for his life. He wasn't able to show off his mobility in the sense that, like he did for Kansas City, he was pretty well bottled up, and he just kept giving up big sacks, not by any fault of his own for the most part. He just had to hold on to the ball and not make a dumb play. So I give Joe Burrow big-time credit for him being able to keep that composure and not forcing himself to have to chuck it down the field to hope for something. A lot of guys in that position we've seen in the regular season just chuck it up and hope for the best because this play is dead or whatever. So for Joe, he did a really good job of just staying clean with it, just looking for the best play at that moment. And sometimes, unfortunately, taking that sack was the best thing he could do. The one thing that really did go offensively well for the Bengals was just, they were out there to be creative. They were out there to make things happen. Joe Mixon doing the trick play was very impressive, but the distribution was what the Bengals needed to do. They needed to make sure they're distributing the ball the best they could. And they did amongst their three receivers to make sure that your coverage couldn't just sneak off onto one receiver and target on them. So excellent job there. Biggest thing I loved about what I saw with the Bengals was the defense. Defense throughout the game just looked really good, really on point, especially that rush defense. That rush defense was no joke. The Rams could never get into a good rhythm or gear. I mean, 43 total rushing yards the whole game. It was a big disparity there. The Rams just looked lost trying to get a running attack going. Quite honestly, it looked like the Bengals knew exactly where they wanted to run and what they were going to call every time the Rams lined up in the backfield. Yeah, they popped off a few runs here and there, but for the most part, the Bengals just had their number in the rushing attack. So that put a lot on the passing game for the Rams. Looking at the Rams, when Odell was in there, before Odell went down, their passing attack was dangerous. It was lethal. It was hard for the Bengals to be able to spread their coverage well enough to get everyone covered the Rams were moving quite efficiently. Once Beckham went down, then you started seeing a lot of kinks happening with the Rams offense. They were doing well. They weren't inept, but you could just definitely tell they were scrambling and trying to push things together. They were really relying on Daryl Henderson to get some stuff out of the backfield to make some magic happen because My guess would be without watching like extensive film or anything like that, that Cooper Cup was just struggling to get himself open through the double or triple coverage or whatever they were throwing in their way to keep him in check. He wasn't as explosive as one might think he might be throughout this whole game to be the Super Bowl MVP. His play came really in the clutch. In the end, when they needed that touchdown to pull ahead, when they were down 16 to 20. The biggest thing you can take away with the Rams is the defensive pass rush did what they needed to do. They took advantage of a bad matchup and exploited it to help their team come out with the victory. The big part on the offensive side is when it came down to that final drive, Cup was doing everything he could to get to that ball or be open or get to the spot that he needed to to get the ball. Now that I've looked at what both teams did well or didn't do well with it, overall, like I said, this was a really good game. It was a very good back and forth. You felt like each team was being that prize fighter. One would win the first round, then another team would take over the second round, and so on. So it kept going back and forth with body blows and no knockout blows until we got down to the end. I know there's been some complaints about some of the calls that were made or non-calls that were made. But I really feel like those calls really balance each other out. So many point to the defensive holding that was called by the linebacker for the Bengals against Cooper Cup in the third and goal situation to give the Rams a few more downs to try to punch it in for the go-ahead touchdown. And I would argue for those that really focus on that play, you know you got away with one as a Bengals nation or fan base when T. Higgins pretty well pulled Jalen Ramsey down to get that one play 75 yard touchdown. There was no mistaking about it. Does he maybe make the catch and they drive down and eventually score a touchdown? Maybe, but the same argument can be made for the defensive holding. It was a third and goal situation, not a fourth and goal to where the next play, who knows what would have happened. There's a lot of what is, but I really did feel like for the most part, the calls that were questioned were even out. There's one for the Bengals side. There's one for the Rams side. So for me, I don't feel like the game was too lopsided one way or the other. I've seen a few photos about the fourth and one play, the final Bengals offensive play to where Aaron Donald lined up offsides. It's a big moment, and they know he's going to come one way or the other. And it's your job to stop them, no matter what. If they don't call it, you can't rely on a rush whistle to bail you out. You got to be there and play. And that's the bottom line is both teams came to play. And in the end, it was the Rams being able to just take that big advantage of the maligned offensive line of the Bengals. So congratulations, the Los Angeles Rams, Super Bowl champions. What an impressive run. What an impressive experience to be able to see this game and just be able to experience the ups and downs. The trials and tribulations and just like the ferocity really after that last field goal where the Rams pulled within four, just the possessions became very short drives until it came down to the Rams have to get this touchdown or they're not winning this game. I want to look at the future of the teams here. First, we'll start off with our Super Bowl champs. Our Super Bowl champs in the Los Angeles Rams have a lot of things going on here in the offseason for them. Number one, they have a lot of contracts that are expiring, and that's not surprising considering how they set up their team. Like I said off the top, this is an organization that has been very aggressive in making moves and trying to get players via trade or picking them up, and when they do so, generally speaking, you're getting a short contract. We have the following players that are going to be up for a new deal, whether it's going to be with the Rams or otherwise. Von Miller. Darius Williams. Darius Williams, um, the other side of Jalen Ramsey on the defensive backfield side. Sony Michelle, Odell Beckham, Corbett, their offensive line guard, Brian Allen, their starting center, a couple of linebackers they have up for contract, and then Joseph Day for the defensive tackle, the opposite side of Aaron Donald. Those are some pretty big gaps you're looking to fill. Darius Williams did a pretty good job at being the opposite of Jalen Ramsey because he would have the ball coming his way a lot. In most situations, Sony Michel was a very good back in spots. He's not on every game back or an every down type of back, but there were spots he could do well for you. Super Bowl notwithstanding, Von Miller, his resume needs no explanation. He's been very good. Obviously, getting towards the end of his career, I don't believe this is the end, but we'll see. Everyone always makes decisions after you get a ring. Odell Beckham, unfortunately, going down with that injury, it's a real big question what's going to happen with him. But unfortunately, all these names I just mentioned, I don't think they're going to be able to resign. I think the Rams are going to have to find a way to reload through free agency. They're really going to have to scout for talent that's going to be cheaper because their cap situation right now is looking a little murky. For them to get these players back that are having these expiring contracts, you're going to see a lot of new names and new faces For those sides of the ball, defense and offense, just because of where they're at cap wise. They're going to make some moves, some concessions, maybe restructure some contracts, but I'm going to say the majority of those walk away for the expiring contracts. When a Super Bowl happens, you always have the prospect of who comes back next year and doesn't retire. And Eric Weddle right away said he's re retiring, which that was not a shocker. I mean, they asked him to come back during their playoff run to help fulfill the holes in safety that happened through concussions and other injuries so for him to say he's going back in retirement wasn't much of a shock Andrew Whitworth I would be beyond flabbergasted if he didn't retire this time to just say that's it that's the end of my career he had a great number of years with Cincinnati and then these last three to four years with Los Angeles Rams he's done a phenomenal job and I mean there's no better way to end it than with a Super Bowl championship. One name that has been circulating in the retirement circle has been Aaron Donald, and really see that Aaron Donald's doing more of a game of where he wants to be recognized and paid as the best defensive player in the league, as well as he should. He shouldn't just sit there on his contract and just wait for them to honor it, because Who knows if they do? Who knows if they keep you around? NFL franchises will dump you the moment they don't see value in you. So for him to want more money and hint at possibly retiring is well played on his part. He is by far one of the most dynamic defensive players, if not the most dynamic. He just commands so much attention. You have to devote so much time and effort and energy and resources to stop him. And even then, he still can make a play or two if not more, I don't think he's truly ready to be done. I really think this is more of a bargaining chip. I really think this is something he wants them to really look at and pay him what he's worth. I think he still has a few more years he wants to contribute to the game of football. We'll see what he ends up doing. The next biggest story I've been hearing coming out of this is the question or curiosity of, is Matthew Stafford now a Hall of Fame quarterback? Where does he rank amongst the all-time greats and can he get himself in the canon? You pause and you wonder, what is going to be a Hall of Fame quarterback for a quarterback that plays from 2010 on until the rules change or until the dynamics of the games change? What do we look at as a Hall of Fame quarterback? Because he's just below the top 10 in those major categories of pass completions, passing yards, and passing touchdowns. So when you're looking at that, numbers-wise, he looks like he should be there, but is that a result of how the game is played now, where the heavy emphasis is on quarterbacks? Matthew Stafford can always hang his hat. I played for Detroit. It was a franchise that struggled, and we made the best of it, and for me to put up these numbers should be beyond impressive, and now he has a ring. So where does that put him? If he was retired today, would he eventually get in the hall? I think based on his story, he would get in the hall. His numbers, I think because of what we're going to see with quarterbacks these next few years, especially these young quarterbacks in the AFC, I think his numbers are not going to look as impressive when it gets five years down the road if he was to retire this season. I think Matthew will still be around these next few seasons. What he needs to do is really not pad the stats, but just show that this wasn't a fluke. Not saying he has to win another Super Bowl, but just keep showing your efficiency and everything like that. Because now teams, organizations, and fans are able to see you more often, not struggling to try to come back and make the game competitive, but try to battle to win a game. Because there's no secret in Detroit, wins were at a premium, and more times than not, Matthew Stafford had to throw his way back into games to try to make it so the Lions could tie the team, not beat the team. For me, Matthew Stafford is not a surefire Hall of Famer right now, today. Is he super close? Would he get in after a few years of being on the ballot? Yes, I do think so. But when someone asks me, is he a Hall of Famer? I'm thinking you're talking first ballot, maybe second ballot type Hall of Famer. And I think right now, based on his number lines, I don't think he would be that right now. That really goes back to how the game is played today with so many quarterbacks showing that potential to be able to do that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm writing really high on some of these quarterbacks. Maybe they never come close to these numbers in the five years if he was to retire now. Right now, I think he needs to add a bit more to his resume before he could hang it up and be that first ballot or second ballot type of Hall of Famer. Now, looking at the Rams here, we looked at their contract situations where I'm thinking they're not going to be able to sign most of these big names. They're all probably going to find some a new jersey to wear next season you might get one or two of the guys back but cap situation is not look the greatest for that so where do they look into the next season the next season for the los angeles rams i think they're going to be their top contender in their division mostly because seahawks look like they're going to have a lot of things they need to address and fix before they're back up there again Arizona Cardinals look like they're having a bit of turmoil right now. So it's going to be between them and the 49ers, in my opinion, if I'm doing this way too early prediction without free agency and everything else. I as a guest right now, they're going to be going back and forth with the San Francisco 49ers to win that division. And with that being the case, I would give Los Angeles a slight edge. The expectation is with San Francisco that Jimmy Garoppolo is going to get traded you're going to have trey lance as your starter and if that's the case i think trey lance's inexperience as a starting nfl quarterback costs the niners a game or two especially tight games that the rams and 49ers tend to play against each other i think that gives the rams the edge to possibly take that division again that's my way too early prediction before anything is settled now looking at our super bowl runner-up here in the cincinnati Bengals for them they're the opposite of the Rams. Rams are in cap trouble. The Bengals are in cap euphoria. They have $59 million to spend this offseason. They have very few expiring contracts of individuals that they couldn't possibly re-sign or look to upgrade. Uzoma, their tight end, is probably the biggest name that sticks out to me. Just being casual observer of the Bengals, their big thing is you have a great young core. You have a quarterback that's inexpensive right now. You need to capitalize on this opportunity and hit the right players. Don't go for just big names. Go for the players that are going to fit your system, your mold the best. Because I think sometimes when you have a team with early success, they fall too much in love with, oh, we have to get this veteran presence or that veteran presence. It's like, yes, veteran presence are a great thing to have, but you need to have the right kind of veterans. You need the ones that can fit your mold, your scheme, the ones that show on tape what you're looking for to keep building on what you have. Because many people have pointed out going into the game, it was the offensive line that was going to cost you. And coming out of it, they were all right. That would be square one. Do you go for the left tackle Armstead from New Orleans who may not be able to re-sign them? Do you go for Orlando Brown? What can you go for? Because that's going to be the first spot you want to look at. Because if you can't keep Joe Burrow upright. If you can't keep him healthy, you're going to be losing a quarterback very quickly. Look at Andrew Luck, took a lot of hits early on in his career and now he's not in the league. You need to make sure you're building that offensive line. So it's very important that Cincinnati takes this opportunity while their quarterback is still cheap to build up that offensive line. Your receivers are good, never hurts to have a few more cheaper ones to be backups or to fill those roles that may be too expensive and then the defensive side making sure we keep the turnover going as much as we want to hold on to players I think sometimes teams that have success may be falling in love too early with that got them there and there's nothing wrong with showing loyalty I as a fan love to see loyalty from teams but sometimes if they're not willing to pull their number back a little bit to a reasonable level sometimes you need to move on from them especially when production looks to be waning a bit. For the Bengals, they're in the opposite situation. They just need to make sure they make the right decisions of who to bring in. But I believe that they can build onto this to be a high-end contender for the AFC moving forward. So what does their future look like? Well, many would say they're going to be a runaway with their division or think of them as a huge favorite for the division. I don't know if I quite buy into that narrative because of One team in particular in their division being the Baltimore Ravens. Baltimore Ravens were decimated with injuries. They were in the thick of this hunt for the AFC North. But then injuries to secondary, Lamar Jackson going down, and a whole plethora of different things started popping up and happening to them that really took took the wind out of their sails, made them a non-contender in the end. I do think Cincinnati has the inside track for the division. I think ultimately it'll be between them and the Ravens. But... I wouldn't count out the Ravens whatsoever. I think the Ravens are going to be a very tight contender. They're going to be very close with each other. But I think Cincinnati has enough confidence in themselves and enough coming back and enough youth that I think they can edge out the Ravens here. Browns and Steelers, they can be contenders if they really address those quarterback situations and get those under control because they do have good things going on for them. Ultimately, I think... The Bengals and Rams are top-end contenders for their divisions. I know that's not going much on the limb. Rams more of virtue because of what their division looks like right now. And then the Bengals, because of the opportunity to spend, are we going to spend the right way? Or are we going to have a lot of money wasted like the Washington Commanders late 90s, early 2000s would spend, 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 spend but never hit the right players to get in the right spot to have their team be that contender they were hoping to build. So a lot to see there with that. We'll keep an eye on that. Even though the NFL season for 2021 is now closed after 20 plus weeks, almost half a year of NFL football, we won't quit talking about it here. Moving on this weekend at the posting of this podcast, we will have the NBA All-Star Weekend happening in our backyard here in Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio to be more precise. So a few hours from where I'm at, but we have the All-Star Weekend going on here and lots of different events going on. I think they've really done a good job of trying to showcase different things about the NBA, especially being the 75th anniversary. I feel like they're going to pull out a whole lot more stops. They have a whole lot of innovation going into this, especially with those right with that Rising Star Tournament. Let's go ahead and use this weekend, all-star weekend to forecast or make my predictions of who's gonna win what. Some of these are just gut feels because you don't have statistics to look at or historical evidence to really look at to say this is how it'll go or how it won't go. But first I want to look at the skills challenge. Here in the skills challenge they have team onto coupo versus team calves versus team rookies. I think that's a very good and neat concept. I think it's the best way to make sure your host team is incorporated in it. Looking at the skills challenge, if I was going to make my pick, I think I'm going to go with Team Rooks. That seems like an upset, but you have two guards on that and one forward. So in theory, these guards should have better ball handling skills and better vision and different aspects of what the skills challenge looks for. Moving on next to the three-point challenge. In this year's three-point challenge, you have CJ McCullough, Trey Young, Desmond Bain, Carl Anthony Towns, Fred Van Vliet, Luke Kennard, Patty Mills, and the only returning member from last year's three-point contest, Zach Levine. Last year, Steph Curry won it, not in it this year. Zach Levine was in it last year, like I mentioned, but he was eliminated in the first round. So does he get redemption or what happens here? And for me, looking at this, I looked up their three-point percentage, how many three-point attempts have they taken so far this season? Looking at this data, looking at that information, which one looks the best? Well, coming into it, the one with the most attempts, three-point attempts per game, is Fred VanVleet. He, he does about 10 attempts, makes about 40% of the shots. Looks pretty good. Then we have a lot of them that are about seven, six range, three-point attempts. And they're all in that 43 to 39% range. So that's where I start looking at. Which one do I think is going to be able to string these together very quickly, do well, and be able to perform well? And for me, I'm going to say Fred VanVleet. Fred VanVleet has shown that he can take multiple shots and make a high percentage of his three-pointers. He takes 10 a game, is at 40%, where the rest are six or seven. And so he's taken three to four more than them and isn't terribly off. So I'm going to go with Fred VanVleet. Moving on to the slam dunk contest, the true guessing game of who's going to win. There's no hometown slam dunker this year, so we have Cole Anthony from Orlando, Juan Toscano Anderson from Golden State, Oboy Toporiri from the New York Knicks, and Jalen Green from Houston. I think your slam dunk champion this year, I want to say Cole Anthony because Orlando seems to produce one thing really well, and that's a slam dunk champion, but I don't think it's going to be him. I think it's going to end up being, I'm going to go with Jalen Green. I feel good about what Jalen Green has done throughout his career. He may not be a slam dunk artist, but I really think he can be creative with his ball handling skills, able to put together and be creative enough to come up with some. So I'm going to go with Jalen Green from the Houston Rockets as the slam dunk champion. Moving on next to the Rising Stars Challenge. This year, the Rising Stars Challenge takes a new perspective and really honoring the number 75. The 75th year of the NBA, they're really going out of their way to make sure they honor it. You have four teams in this year's Rising Stars Challenge coached by James Worthy, Isaiah Thomas, Gary Payne, Rick Berry. Rick Berry and Gary Payne, their teams face off in one game. Team Isaiah and Team Worthy face off in the other game. And how it works in the first game, folks, is the first game has... The first team, the 50 points wins for each matchup. So Team Isaiah, Team Worthy, whichever team gets the fifty first, moves on to the next round. Team Barry, Team Payton, same deal. And then in the final game, the first team to 25 to get to your 75 wins the game. So looking at this, what players can mesh well the best? In the Rising Star Challenge, the team I feel most strongly about would be Team Payton. I think Team Payton ends up winning this. They're led by LaMelo Ball. And I think with his experience and his ability to kind of navigate through different situations because of what he's been expected to do as a Charlotte Hornet will help the rest of the team come together and work their way through it with their guard play and the number of guards they have. I think that will play well in their favor, especially with it being a scoring contest, essentially trying to get the 50 points in the 25. I feel like As a player, Gary was all about getting distribution and getting points. So I'm going to go with him. Moving on to the All-Star game. The All-Star game is a score fest. Very little defense is played. A lot of shots being chucked up by individuals that would never chuck them up in a game sometimes. Uh, Most notably Shaquille O'Neal taking three-point shots or Dwight Howard taking three-point shots just because they could. But this year we have Team LeBron versus Team Durant. Team Durant. Their captain, Kevin Durant, is injured, so he won't be playing this year, but he was able to draft his team. His team consists of Andrew Wiggins, Jason Tatum, Joel Embiid, John Morant, Trey Young, where Team LeBron's starting lineup is LeBron James himself, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Nokel Jokic, DeMar DeRozan, and Steph Curry. So looking at these teams, what are we looking at this year? Well, coming into this, since we've been doing the team captain selecting the teams, LeBron has had the opportunity to select the teams at least four other times, this being his fifth time. And up to this game, he's been 4-0. and Is this the time that he falls off and doesn't get that fifth win? I don't think so. His team ends up winning this game and Le- Team LeBron goes 5-0. and Now it comes down to who will be the all-star MVP. Well, if I'm picking Team LeBron, who's going to be the all-star MVP? This seems like a no-brainer. I think it's going to be LeBron James it's in Cleveland, in his hometown. He leads an all-star team. He's going to do everything he can to make sure he goes 5-0. and He gets his fourth all-star MVP if he completes this. tying Kobe Bryant and Bob Pettit. What else would you want as the NBA with your 75th anniversary? And those are my picks for the all-star weekend. Again, going through them, the skills challenge. I think the team rookie is going to win that one. For the three-point contest, I think it's going to be Fred VanVleet. Sam Dunk Contest, just a guess. I'm going to go with Jalen Green. Rising Star Challenge, I think Team Payton ends up winning, being led by LaMelo. I think his experience plays a lot in their ability to get, get down the court and score the points needed to win. And then last but not least, the All-Star Game. Team LeBron, I believe, wins it, goes 5-0. and And LeBron is considered the All-Star MVP. And that concludes this episode of the Sports Forecasters. I've been your host, Nick Alvarez. Thank you so much for listening. Please comment, give me some of your feedback, and we'll see you next time.